Awe sneaks up on me, like an unwarranted hug, metronomic, like the exhale of the moon that appears at dusk, like the deflated lawn ornament of a bear in a Santa hat that fills with air on a timer each raw December dawn and rises with an unsuspecting smile. Hello and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Canellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am here today with poet Gloria Munoz, also an educator and a filmmaker and an all-around creative person. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So what exactly is eco-poetics? It's a great question. <laughs> eco-poetics is the art of truly being able to observe. So you're writing about nature, from nature, without judgment, without an agenda, which is pretty hard to do because if you decide like I'm going to write about X experience or environment or thing or, you know, animal or place, you often go in even knowing like I'm going to write something like that is my takeaways. Like I'm going to take something away from this place or this experience. Eco-poetry instead asks the writer to kind of slow down and to experience the place through all the tactile senses and to just be a part of it and then to reflect on it. Really different than like what we're taught when we're taught to kind of write about a subject. So it's very like deeply concentrated observation in different spaces about different topics. And it very much looks at kind of like the elegiac nature of everything around us. So it's the fleetingness of a moment and truly trying to observe a moment. And, you know, it's interesting right now because what drew me to eco-poetics is like the time that we're in right now. Um, we, you know, we're past the, the age of information and now we're in the age of experience, but we very much experience via screen or via kind of claiming an experience being, you know, which means sharing it or showing it versus actually experiencing it. And I think when you do stop to actually stop and observe you notice that sort of fleetingness mm -hmm. to everything around you, which is like tragic and beautiful. So give me an example of that. I think any kind of protest, environmental protest is that, mm -hmm. right? It's like a deep trying to hold on to something, but this thing is inevitably moving forward. Thinking of our sort of environmental degradation and how quickly we're sort of zapping our environment and then the role that we have as people, as part of this environment to kind of hold on to and keep things. Anything like, I, I started the Encyclopedia of Extinction, it's, it's working title, which is about this sense in particular, like the sense of deep nostalgia that we have. Like we're in a time where we really want to hold on to things and keep memories and keep stuff, material things. Mm -hmm. But I think we're a little unsure of why. It almost sounds a little bit like a Borges kind of project, the Encyclopedia of Extinction. Yeah, his like dreams. He, yeah, definitely. In order to make the perfect map, it's basically you make the world, right? The Encyclopedia of Extinction just sort of seems like a kind of thing that, you know, the scientists would be doing or the poets. Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so what is that for, from a poet point of view, what does the Encyclopedia of Extinction look like? I think a collection of these moments and things that I would want to take note of and that I would want to pass on, like 
initially when I thought of this project, I was thinking of like a storybook for kids. And I was like, well, who would really need this? Mm -hmm. Right. And something I asked my students to think about is like, if you had to take memories from like this life, like my nonfiction students in particular, like what would those memories be and why? And like, can you flesh them out? Like not just, you know, graduation or like these big monumental moments, but what are these things that are very special and very dear to you? So I think the Encyclopedia of Extinction looks like that, like a catalog of, of moments and things that I'd like to pass on or I'd like to keep in our conversation, in our human dialogue. So in your own personal Encyclopedia of Extinction, what would be some of the entries in that? Yeah, I think a big one is culture. I think culture, I think things you lose with age, perspective, perspective shifts, even experiences of environments, like how a place shifts and changes, you know, over and over and over again through a lifespan. I think that's something that I'm interested in looking at. So do you have an example of a poem that is not informed by eco-poetry and then a poem that is informed by eco-poetry? Maybe. All right, let's see what we <laughs> Maybe. Have. Let's see. And this is from it's your called, chapbook? This is from my chapbook. It's called Thread by Thread, and it is a villanelle, which is a form, and it begins with an epigraph. I don't know if this fits the bill for not being... I feel like I've been sort of interested in this mode for a long time without knowing it, but we'll see. Thread by Thread. I heard the incessant dissolving of silk. I felt my heart growing so old in real time. Agasha Hidali. You were born on a cloud-clogged night to the ring of your own tintinabular cry. You were fed thread by thread by your mother. You learned to love in another country, and the wind with its thousand hands took what it could, and through star-clogged eyes you watched dawn shake loose its skin, and the saffron sun rained marigolds as you gave yourself thread by thread to another. Oh, body that is swept of its senses. You learn to love with your brain and breath. Your children will be born into the fog-clogged years when you'll mend your mother like a doll and bury your father whose mind has unspooled thread by thread to a child's. Cupping each word like a stone, you'll wear your language like a family heirloom. And your marigold chest will burn when your grandchildren are born on a dream-clogged night you'll begin to dissolve thread by thread into the cross-stitch sky. Mm. That's an older poem, um, very much from like the personal experience. And then I'll, I'll do another one, let's see. And this also begins with a uh, epigraph. It's a glossa, so a glossa is like an old Spanish form in which you choose four lines from a poem, and then you kind of Jacob ladder them through the poem, so they kind of weave through the poem. And this is just called glossa. I think about you a lot, future person, how you will need all the books that were ever read when the screens and wires go dumb. And that's from Dana Levin's Banana Palace. Despite the constant urge to stick all branches in my mouth, to keep a humming terranium inside me, to bend close and dig harder, I can't help but sense the rotting. I think about you a lot, future person, what happens when the rooting powder doesn't work its magic? When everything is bonsai or encased in glass? You'll confuse ancient roots with tripping wire. What a minefield we'll have left. Oh, how you will need 
We'll also leave you a clusterfuck of concrete and other impenetrable matter. Things built with immortality in mind. Sundials, bridges, monuments, tombstones. Don't mind the rubble of the present inked on your forearm. Can't remember where you read it, but it's stuck. You'll spend most of your life trying to remember, searching in all the books that were ever read. You'll hear about the age of information and the age of experience when we try to hold onto every moment through our phone cameras. I don't know what you'll use to feel connected when the screens and wires go dumb. Hmm. So let's talk about that. How, in, in your experience, how are they different? I think in my experience, one is looking a little more inward while the other's looking more outward. The second one's definitely more influenced via environment while the first is influenced via personal history and personal environment. Mm -hmm. I think in that way they are, I think they're both really uh, like heavily laced with nostalgia Mm -hmm. um, and with that sort of mode, which is something that I, I think I just am drawn to and memory. Memory, I think are important in both. So what are you working on now? A lot of different stuff, um, kind of hybrid forms on poetry and nonfiction and how they communicate. I'm particularly interested in the lyric essay, which is, it's like an essay that breaks a lot of rules. So it does not necessarily need to follow time. It does not necessarily need to stick to a specific structure. It examines like kind of through a swirl. Mm-hmm. as opposed to an arc or any other kind of mapping tool. The first poem you read was a villanelle. Yeah. Basically, you have three tercets, you have three-line stanzas, and you kind of take one of those lines and you kind of fling it in, like you kind of weave it into the poem, and it kind of continues to do that over and over. It sort of begins to build off of itself So looking at like the sounds, right? You were fed thread by thread by your mother, then uh, two stanzas down as you gave yourself thread by thread to another. And then you go down from that and you have sort of this repetition. And the last stanza is a tricky one. All these forms, Sestinas do the same thing. It's like the last stanza, they try to get all parts of the stanza in there. So you have like the repetition just happens, like it doubles on itself in the last stanza. Cupping each word like a stone, you'll wear your language like a family heirloom, and your marigold chest will burn, and that's from earlier, when your grandchildren are born on a dream-clogged night. And that's from earlier. And you'll begin to dissolve thread by thread into the cross-stitch sky, so it kind of hooks, it kind of doubles back. And that's very structured, and in order to be a villanelle, it needs to meet all those criteria. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I love structure, actually, also. And and then the the glossa, what's the structure of that? That one's a little more flexible. Uh, You have four lines, and they can be from a stanza, or they can be from in more experimental glosses, like from anywhere in the poem. And you just write a stanza, and you end each stanza with one of those four lines. So that's a little less structured in a way, but you have to kind of find your way back to that last Mm -hmm, line. mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, this book, I love this book very much, Banana Palace by Dana Levin. It's one of my favorite poetry books. So I've like carried a lot of those like lines with me. Mm-hmm. So when I sat down to write this, I was like, oh, I want to revisit this. Who is this future person? Because I love that idea and I was very intrigued by it. The glass is Spanish. Huzzles are Persian. I have some huzzles that I enjoy. 
Pantoums, French. They sort of create a, a puzzle to solve? Kind of, yeah. Kind of having some kind of constructed end goal or constraint is helpful, especially because you sit down to write and you could write about anything, unless it's something narrative, you know, unless I'm working on like fiction in which I kind of know where to pick up where I left off. With a poem, it's, you never end up anywhere close to where you're starting. So it's very fun, I think, to have those constraints and to figure out like, okay, how am I going to work, you know, into this count, into the syllable count? How am I going to bring, sometimes I just like love a word or two and I'm like, I'm going to figure out a way to bring these words into this because I want to use these words. And even those constraints are fun because they kind of get you to an uncomfortable place, right? They get you out of your, you know, very comfortable mode of the poem that you could write over and over and over again. And I think into new territory. Mm -hmm. So then back to the lyric essay, it doesn't have any of those things, right? To a degree. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, Help me understand. So often a lyric essay could be, my gosh, it could be anything. It could be written as a recipe. Say you're writing about your great grandmother and you decide to write an essay about her. You could write it via a recipe maybe that she passed down to you and you're sort of discovering the voice through that. It can be written as a braid in which you're kind of braiding three themes together. So say say one theme is uh, gender identity and another theme is being first generation and another theme is death, right? And you could weave those three together mm-hmm. throughout without necessarily having to give great warning or build too much scene around mm-hmm. why you're moving around these mm-hmm. ideas because you kind of begin to teach your reader how to read early on. Could be like what's called the hermit crab lyric essay, which could be a uh, like a, a playlist, for example, right? Like a playlist for the band that we never formed. Something like that. And, then it can and be why a- is that a hermit crab? Because it takes on a different form. It's just called the hermit crab lyric essay. It's just like a, a form that kind of takes on another. But what's central like to that is a question. So I think that's really important. Like in the lyric essay, like you have a question or something that you're looking towards, maybe learning more about. You don't necessarily need a resolution, but you want to learn more about this thing. And then from there, you kind of let that dictate like what direction you're going to take So do you have a lyric essay? I do, and this is like super new. Oh, cool. I have to say, like so new that I need to just, can I change one word? I just, let's see. Thanks. Okay, yeah, this is pretty new. And um, I mean, doesn't have punctuation, has a lot of space on the page. So you're holding it up so that I can look at it. And what I'm seeing is sort of diagonal patterns of, of white space and, and dark space. So it's not a typical line Prose, by line by yeah. line. Yeah, totally. And working titles holding on to really like seriously two days old. So Oh, this is <laughs> Here very we exciting. Go. Here we go. Um, holding on to. All arrows point back to a tight space, to a grave or a heart or the ground compacted, to the marsupial places we burrow in to begin or end, legs and arms praying, maybe, uninterested, in the weather or whatever talk will fill the hour. How many hours are filled with chattering around a subject? The third flush of tea leaves leaves me wanting more exquisiteness out of tactility. How compression keeps the heart beating but too much stops it. My heart beats even while I sleep, 
It pushes against and tries to escape through my skull's crevices. The heart, a battering ram that breaks out of instead of into castle doors. Recognizing the movement of your own or someone else's heart is like a chill or a burn, always new. To contract and give way in throat, temple, cold cheek, chest, back, palm. All at once I'm guilty of romanticizing and overlisting to explain, or both. Each deflates. But the beauty of exactness engages me to no end. Even the word beauty isn't right. How a gasp feels less like a filling of and more like a diaphragm collapsing into paper to fold itself into a hummingbird battering for air against a xylophonic ribcage. How the diaphragm isn't punctured by heartache is beyond me. But organs stay stacked. While the heart beats through bad sporadic jazz and improvises to remember its cadence. How in a doorway I gave the reasons why a past relationship would work to a face that was bedecked with secrets like a disco ball, saying nothing. I'm reminded of my frailness when all the air is sucked out of every container in my body. Because even emptiness requires attention. A vacant office building lit up at night is monumental. The climate-controlled storage units where we store objects, cradled in bubble wrap to sleep in the city of memories. Is there a more sublime example of human nostalgia? Everything seems to be made to hold another thing. How all past relationships, mine and yours, were kept in boxes. A lifespan of inside jokes compacted into a shoebox. Awe sneaks up on me like an unwarranted hug, metronomic, like the exhale of the moon that appears at dusk, like the deflated lawn ornament of a bear in a Santa hat that fills with air on a timer each raw December dawn and rises with an unsuspecting smile. Wow, thank you. What type of lyric essay is that? I started with exploring this sense of like, what is it to be filled or unfull, empty is the, mm-hmm. is the mm-hmm. thing there, to be full or empty and what that tactically feels like. So it just started there. And I think it just, it, it will have more, I think, sections to it or more parts to it. But right now that's sort of where I'm at. Like, it's funny because you start with this question and, you know, of course that led to well, what is that? Like, what is the smallest, most compact we've ever been? And that's like when we're marsupial and tiny, right? So it led to sort of these small spaces, which led to compression and then compression. Now I'm like thinking like parts that I want to add to this are about compression in our vision, right? Because that's what we do with JPEGs or with even an image we see, we flip it around, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and sound, compression and sound is something I'm like very interested in because we fill in spaces, so that's sort of what this is leading to, which is really fun. Like a lyric essay is like a ride, truly, because now my, you know, for the past 48 hours since writing this, I've been thinking, my gosh, what else do we fill up? Which I think 
is going to take more of this essay or another one to think about. One of the first things I tell like all my students and that I require of them is a just notebook, like a field notebook. I'm like, make it something small you can put in your pocket, carry around, or now cell phones. So that's the comfortable mode of taking information mm. in. And I, I do ask them to observe, to be a part of the world that they're in. I don't think they are going to become good writers if they're simply navel gazing mm-hmm. or looking into themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something I really emphasize early on, um, like collect information, collect experiences, tune into yourself during an experience. I think that's something we often don't do, right? If you've stopped for a moment at like the Thanksgiving table and said, my gosh, what do I feel like right now eating this like old recipe or seeing, you know, these row of faces that look somewhat like mine, but each is very different. Um, so I do, I ask them to observe and ask them to read, I ask them to read a lot to read a lot of what's happening now news-wise and to also read a lot of contemporary literature, but then to also read like old literature and widely globally. I think mm-hmm. it's really good to read like what's unpopular to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, you can look at the bestseller seller list. Well, so is everybody else, right? So I ask them like, you know, figure out what you're interested in and then find writers who have been doing that for the last 40 years or more, right? And then start there. So much of writing happens off the page for me, like you're thinking about it or dreaming about it or just seeing it everywhere and taking random notes about it. And then things are coming together. I started writing nonfiction in grad school. I took a wonderful class that I was like really opposed to it. And then I just started sort of started warming up to writing about my experience and writing from myself, realizing that you didn't need to be like the you know child of a rock star to write about yourself. You could just write about your human experience and that alone could be interesting or engaging. So yeah, I write a lot about deep dives into subjects that I'm curious about. So they're not necessarily like overtly personal. I am interested in like what we, what we carry, right? Mm-hmm. And in what we carry and what we choose to pass on. I also write about family, like kind of being born into a Colombian American family and that experience and more so like questions I've had about that experience, what it is to be first generation and what it is to kind of process a country via that mode. I think coming from like, and this is not unique to me, I think most people who have parents from other places feel the same. Like you come, you're raised in a very romanticized version of the country that you're raised in. And then you grow up and you realize, oh my gosh, (laughs) like this is not like the America or the place that like my parents love so intensely, Mm -hmm. right? And with such fervor that I would never question it. But as you grow up, obviously you begin to kind of look around and see and notice changes and, and kind of debunk some of the some of the facade that you uh, grew up with. So have you been to Colombia? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've been many times. Oh, okay. Yeah, I love it. Huge family there. <laughs> a lot of family. And again, and it's my version of Colombia is very different than my parents' version of Colombia. So that's also like, it's like you flip. Mm-hmm. So that's fascinating to experience mm-hmm. um, and to see. I also 
also wanted to ask you a little bit about your filmmaking. I started a production company four years ago with some of my nearest and dearest friends that I've known since I was 14, I think. Um, Picture Productions is the name of it. And we were all talking a lot and thinking a lot about women in the arts and the lack of voice women in the arts have sometimes, especially when it comes to decision making. It's seen a lot right now in film, but I think it's it's pervasive across all art forms. We were talking about this and we decided to give it a go. We said, let's mm-hmm. let's form this production company. And in that time, we've shot a few short films. We've shot music videos. We've shot web series. We're working on a documentary series uh, and a feature. Wow. Uh, and it's been a blast. Like, mm-hmm. I have to say, my, uh, writing, you write alone. You edit alone. You do so much of it alone. Like, you know, besides, like, my writing group in which I talk to other writers, like, a lot of it's very solitary. What I love about film is that you need people for anything. For a three-minute short, you need a ton of people. And you need to talk back and forth. And you need to help each other out. And so that's been, like, awesome. Uh, and we do projects in New York and in Florida we kind of hop around. It's uh, mainly narrative work. Some of it is documentary oriented. And we also work as like an incubator for other women in film. So if somebody pitches us a project that we try to do sort of socially oriented projects, so if somebody pitches us something that fits our criteria and they kind of need, whether it's a full production company or, or they just need advice on producing, which, you know, there's so much to it that you don't think about. Like even paperwork, there's so much paperwork to putting together film. We do educational events, women in film mixers in oh, wow. both locations. And we work on usually tiny budgets. It's kind of insane, like the budgets we work on per project, but we can do a lot with that. And our network has grown a lot over the years. Uh, we run this thing called the Riveter Series, which is a women in film screening series. Our first was themed around mental health. This next one, New York, is going to be themed around sexual assault. We're doing body image and age. Just getting women talking about like the process of filmmaking afterwards. Like we do like little Q and A panels, and we've we've had people come up to us at those events saying like, "Oh my gosh, I've never been in a room where like all the filmmakers are female." Like that's blowing my mind. Right. <laughs> Would you um, finish us off with one more of your poems if you don't want it? Yeah, actually. Okay, and this is called Dawn's Early. Uh, and it's actually like, for my full manuscript, it's the title poem. Dawn's Early. Winding through Titanic Red Rocks. I'm 14. It's the first road trip my family's ever taken. It's attached to a funeral for my dad's boss's wife. Claro. Of course, my mom repeats at every stop. At every merge, por Dios. We drive from Florida to Colorado in a van with no AC. It's July. These vacaciones, I want to show you this country, my dad says. America. The word fills the car with the air of fable and triumph. I came here with nothing but a bag full of books, jobless, you know? I learned English from the radio, country music. My sister turns up her Walkman and I groan at the thought of listening to country music for the next nine hours. This is your country, he exclaims, as if announcing it to the valleys when we stop at a lookout. He sermonizes to bronze statues at rest stops, fields of open sunflowers, 
the majesty of purple mountains, rivers, bridges, and patches of antennas and wind turbines. Oh, say can you see by the Dan's early light? Yes, Dan's early. When learning the anthem, he claimed this adjective as a most glorious form of exclamation in the English language. He greeted strangers at the grocery store with, What a Danzerly day! The afterglow of sunsets, Danzerly. The trailing of hysterical laughter, Danzerly. A pelican's wingspan, a coupon mailer, gliding a knife on the surface of a new tub of butter, all Danzerly. He now knows it's dawn's early, yet on this road trip, he's merged the words to a mystical compound. We attend the funeral, bagpipes, tears, estranged family glances. Back on the road, he continues with, For the land of the free and the home of the... Driving too slowly at every speed trap. After 22 years in this country, he's still afraid of cops. We've rehearsed a protocol just in case act patriotic smile. He continues talking like a loro mojado, as my mom says, a wet parrot. The drive back is full of stories of factories he's worked in. He glosses over spots of discrimination. This is your country, he repeats, in an accent I watch people imitate and smirk at, electing to speak to me instead of my parents. You are American, he says, not naively, but brazenly grateful to live under this dawn's early sky. Wow. Thank you so thank very you. much. Definitely. So, thank you for having me. Oh, Gloria, thank you so much for being Definitely. here. We have been talking today to Gloria Munoz, having just a delightful conversation. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley, and if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.